The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. All right, we are live. I am Bill Amadeo. From McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates and the Shiawassee Six. And uh, we are back with a live because I don't need Josh Strickland to kick my ass out of content for the jail visit. Live audience, what's up? Yeah, today, it's been a rough run, man. Been a rough run. Um, crazy with travel and cases and so many courts are opening up. And today we're going to talk about the Cooley Library. So many interesting things happened at the Cooley Library during law school and during my time of tutoring. And I'll also talk about tutoring. And for those of you that may not know, this makes it a little louder. Tutoring is actually how I met Scott Grable by mistake. We were both tenants at the Chase Bank building in Lansing, and then I went to the bougie tower and he was my landlord and one day Winnie Rich sold me there for ungodly amount of hours that you should do criminal law that's how that happened but let's let's start with a weird story so we had an extern apply for a job today we've always had weird luck with employees and externs I will tell you Jen Kelly awesome Matt McManus my partner um, Christian Wieseberg, solid lawyer. We've had some weird employees, man. We've had some weird externs. Uh, we've had some nightmares. And today, this extern, she wants to apply. So she starts asking all these weird questions. So, you know, we, we're LinkedIn on her, we Facebook her. We could clearly see that she's friends with a prosecutor who can't stand the sight of me. And this prosecutor clearly put this girl in as a plant. And she actually starts asking specifics on certain cases. I'm like, my God, listen, I'm an Atlantic City kid, right? Come on. I mean, dude, like you're playing Texas Hold'em, show me your two cards. What the hell? I'm going to know when to bet, when not to bet. But I said to the young woman, hey, when do you want to start? And... We'll give you a stipend. Like, I was really like, well, bring her in. Bring your enemy in. And uh, I said, we'll gladly feed you all sorts of information so you can learn all these things. I think she caught on that while she was going to be a plant, we were going to give her bad information to bring back to that particular prosecutor. So, quote-unquote prosecutor who's watching this and hating on me, you got to do better when you send in fake people to get information. You just got to. Make them bullshit or poker players or something. That was weak, wasn't it? Anyway, what else about the Cooley Library? The Cooley Library was a fascinating place. And there was something about that library where there was like this aroma of arrogance, if you would. It was strange. I lived in the library in law school. And it was odd. Like, I had my own seat I had my own spot. And there were some real talented people in that library. Sean Colbert was always there. Um, there were some friggin' weirdos. And let me tell you something. 
you knew who was going to make it and who wasn't going to make it by the way they acted in the library. We used to go to the Stab and Grab. And the Stab and Grab was this little convenience store about a block from Cooley. You went out the Cooley doors, you made a right, and then there you were. Okay. So, you'd walk in groups to the Stab and Grab and you would come back. And you learned a lot about people. Like, you learned who was scared to go to the Stab and Grab, who should have been scared to go to the Stab and Grab, who thought they were tough for the first time in their life. And as these Lowell students are sucking on Red Bull and Monster, and God knows I was perhaps the greatest violator of drinking energy drinks, you really start to learn about people. And there was always these high-strung people. And the high-strung people, usually it was high-strung guys, they were terrified about their girlfriend back home cheating on them. And I always found that fascinating. Like, okay, dude, you're in law school, right? She's going to cheat. She's going to cheat. One day, one of the guys in our group who didn't make it, he would always be calling his girl on the phone. Are you home? Are you home? Are you home? Or so it's multiple choice. So he says to me, do you think she's cheating on me? And I said, sure she is. I'm sure of it. So he goes, how do you know? So I am actually responsible for this poor guy dropping out of law school. I, I told a story. And um, it didn't go over well, but here's how it went. There was a girl I was dating before I left for law school back in Jersey. Beautiful girl. You would think butter would melt in her mouth, right? You know who she was. She was pretty. But she was nuts, which used to be a prerequisite. So she tells me, it's either me or law school. You decide. Like, okay, well, we're done. But um, I knew, I had a friend in Jersey. And this friend, he worked with me, right? And she worked with me. And I knew by the time I was halfway to Michigan, he'd be hooking up with her. It's just, it's what this guy does. You know, he was, you were cool with him. But when a female came into play, there was no lines of loyalty. So... This poor kid, he's in our study group. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm so scared she's cheating on me. So I tell him the story. I say, hey, listen, I was with this girl. One of my closest friends went in for the kill when I went off to my first term. We're like in our third term at this point or something. I said, and they're together now. And I said, he got her pregnant. They're miserable. And that's the moral to the story. He goes, what do you mean? So, well, he, you know, he got her. And I broke up with her, and now they're in a miserable relationship, so things are way of evening it out. And he's, like, crying. Like, what do you mean? That's not a good story. I'm like, oh, I want to get rid of her. I mean, you know, we, listen, anybody I was with in Jersey, when I hit the border of Pennsylvania, it was over. I was looking for a way out. This poor guy, he's, like, paranoid, calling his girlfriend over and over again. And he wouldn't shut up. I gotta know what she's doing. I gotta know what she's doing. Eventually, we had to kick him out of the group, and it was horrible. And then he failed out of law school, and he'll blame me for that today. And um, he tells me how they're they're together now. He Facebooked me. We're together. You were wrong, dude. Look at life. Let it go. There was 
So many high-strung people. And law school, you gotta be a little crazy to get through law school, right? You just have to be. And there was, like, this chain-smoking convention. Like, Cooley should have put, like, ashtrays up the wazoo out there, but they didn't. And these poor people, you would, like, secondhand smoke two packs a day when you went out to the Cooley Library. <laughs> like, all these people want to get in, and there's, like, ten parking spots, so you have to have your quarters. And these toll meters, man, the meter maids or whatever, they would be waiting for your ass. And you get to pay these $4 tickets. It was a pain in the ass. Like, I used to leave, like, a 5 by the windshield. Like, maybe just take that and leave me the hell alone. Dating in law school was fascinating. And you used to learn who was dating who by the Cooley Library. Couples would come in, like, hand in hand. We are together. And, you know, law school, like I said, you were crazy for being there. But you didn't care about who was dating who or what was... There were the people that were there for relationships. There were people that were there to sit for the bar exam. And there was like this whole deception group. And when one person would like go from the intellectual to the social butterfly, worlds would start colliding. And you're sitting there, you're nuts in the Cooley Library, and you're just watching the whole scene. And you're so focused on your academics, you would just watch fall apart. It was kind of funny in a way. Remember one time, one of my favorite Cooley library stories, I used to hide out in the second floor of the Cooley library. It's rearranged differently now. And I used to like go into these spots to read alone and I would give every visual clue to leave me the hell alone. Have my earphones on, whatever. And one day, I'm walking by with my earphones, I'm listening to, like, a lecture, and I hear this, this like, crying and screaming, ah, ah, ah. Like, oh my god, what's going on? So I'm following the noise. And I open the door, I'm like, are you okay? And it was two people having sex. I don't know, man. It was... Like, they were crying their eyes out while having sex illegally in the Cooley Library. It was fascinating. And what I did, you know, I graduate in 08. And the firm I was working for, that was a nightmare. That's a story for another time. Some of you kind of know that story. But I come back to Michigan. And I start a tutoring business. And I will tell you, Cooley did everything in their power to destroy my tutoring business. And my tutoring business was supporting my aunt, supporting her during that tough time. I used to go into the Cooley library. And the librarians were like Nazis. They'd be stalking you around. You have no right to be here, blah, blah, blah. And the fascinating thing about tutoring is so many people that I tutored would stiff. They pay like part of the bill and then stiff you. And recently, I've had so many people that I used to tutor that didn't pay contact me for references. I got one right here. This guy, he's <laughs> just funny with this one. So I tutored him for three years, helped him pass the bar. He stiffed me on bar prep. 
He worked as an extern. He didn't come into his externship. So this guy owes money. He screwed over his externship. And he's asking me to write him a letter for a job. I always found that fascinating. Like, how could you stiff me, take my ability, and then ask me for help? Unreal. There was something about tutoring the Cooley students where it was like this rage of asshole come out. Like, these people were like paying $300 a class. There was like a competition going on between me and this other tutor. And the other tutor would actually like send ploys into the free session to try to find out what it was doing. It blew me away. And I can't tell you how cruel the Cooley librarians were. You would be in a study room going over stuff with a student and they would kick you out. They did everything to destroy my tutoring business. When I actually got a rental somewhere else, they talk about my tutoring business. I remember Dean Cerconi. And Dean Cerconi was this guy. He thought he was this big deal. And I asked Cerconi, could I have a table to compete with Barbary and PassYourBar.com? And he said no. Dean Cerconi did everything to screw up my tutoring business. And Charles Cerconi then went to Indiana Tech, and Indiana Tech lost their accreditation. Charlie Cerconi, if you're watching, look at the scoreboard, buddy. There was no loyalty at that place. I mean, after my fourth term, I could have transferred anywhere in the country. Anywhere. And all these coolie professors say, stay with us. We're loyal. We gave you your chance. And then when the economy turned to they wouldn't give me a fucking $15 an hour job in the register's office. And then they tried to destroy the business I built. Don't forget that. Cerconi and then freaking Brandon Beery. He's another one. He thinks he's some big deal. He gives bull quotes sometimes in the media. I remember turning to Brandon Beery asking him for help about this. And he deleted and blocked me. And some of the people that trashed my tutoring business were from the TAP program. The TAP program was the trial admissions program. My God. I would watch TAP students get kicked out for downloading porn. I would watch bad law being taught. Let's start with this TAP, people. Intentional torts. The first element is intent, right? Yeah. There was so much bitterness at Cooley. And my bitterness stems so much from that library. I mean, you gotta understand something. I know things are good today, but there were rough times. 2008 to 2010 were brutal. I'm working 80 hours a week as a tutor. I'm doing it night and day. I care so much about this. I'm supporting my aunt. And here comes these asshole deans at Cooley trying to shut my business down. The piece of shit librarians, they're trying to kick me out. The one thing that was amazing was when I got my own place, we're at the Chase Building in Lansing, and one day, this arrogant lawyer comes in, and this arrogant lawyer was going to rent space, and I used to always work late hours. I'd be in that building using the conference rooms after hours when nobody was around, and there's this lawyer 
and we shake hands. Jasmine Oakley was the manager at the time. She introduces me and this guy named Scott. And Scott says to me, if I got a CSC for $50,000, I need to use that f***ing room. I said, how you doing? I'm Bill Amadeo. And then I said, your last name's Grable. And Grable's bar was an institution in Atlantic City. And I found out we went to the same high school, same college, same law school, same travel baseball teams. They became a lifelong friendship. There were a few great things about tutoring. But I remember for the most part, it's like just trying to survive during horrible economic times. Remember the law school that I stayed at, the law school I took 150 grand in student loans out, the law school that I believed in, trying to stick it up my ass. A lot of bitter times there. What I could say this, the ones at Cooley that were the golden children, the ones that were going to make it, the ones that were going to be those success stories, the ones I put in the brochure, dude, you couldn't hold my job. And the Matt McManuses and the Scott Grables and the Bill Amadeus, we were not going to be on the brochure at Cooley. We were not going to be the star students. We were just the grinders. And you learn in criminal law, it's not always about who's the smartest. It's about who's the hardest worker, who's got the biggest set of balls. What I've learned about the field of law so much from my time at Cooley is there was next to nothing I learned in law school that has played one role and helped me win a case for advocating for my client. I do remember those times when money was tight. I remember getting kicked out of the library. I remember being told my business sucked. I remember the institution I love so goddamn much trying to make me go bankrupt. And the school I loved telling me to go to hell for a $15 an hour job. Scott Harrison, if you're out there watching, who was the head of human resources at Cooley one time. Scott, when you told me you wouldn't hire me for a $15 an hour job in the register's office, and Norman Fell told me to throw in the towel, and Charles Cerconi wouldn't give me a goddamn table to compete with Barbary, and Brandon Beery was acting like a hot shot because he got a quote on CNN one day. Guys, what I can tell you is this in the field of law. Everything will come out in the wash. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. So, you know, I was thinking about John Madden a lot last night. And I was in Lenaway early, then I was regular motions today, hit the gym. Been a tiring day, I guess. I don't know. I know people are taking time off, and we're, we just keep going. You know, sometimes we need to reinvent ourselves, guys. And sometimes we don't think about that. The other night, I'm watching an Eagles game, and I'm watching Rocky. And I'm thinking... Even though I talk about this complex history from the past, the only thing more South Jersey than watching an Eagles game and flipping back to Rocky 
would be if I had a White House cheesesteak sub in my hand and I was polishing off with a cherry marina water ice. I mean, good God. Does that scream Italian from South Jersey? What the f***? So, despite all this animosity towards New Jersey, the reality is this. Where we come from, it's always a part of us. You know? And I think anybody that leaves their environment has a very complex relationship with their past. And I certainly have that. But one thing from the past, one thing kind of always brought us together was John Madden. That's what we're going to talk about right now. John Madden, in my opinion, was the greatest football announcer you could ever hope for. He just made the games better. And when him and Pat Summerall were doing a game, you knew that was the game you had to watch. Now let's go back to the 80s for a minute, so I'm a little kid. Back then, there was no direct TV. You couldn't just watch every game. You know, you had a game on NBC, you had a game on CBS. Later in time, you had a game on Fox. But the game with John Madden and Pat Summerall, that was the national game of the week. So you shut everything down to watch that game. And it was like they were part of your family, you know? You're watching the game, and here's Summerall and Madden. Both gone now, unfortunately. It just made you feel right at home. Scott Grable called me a couple days ago. And Scotty was like, on Christmas Day at 2 o'clock, Fox is doing this special on John Madden. And you gotta watch it. I'm like, yeah, you're damn right I gotta watch it. Unfortunately, I was working on Christmas Day. I was working. And I DVR'd it. But it was almost like Fox subconsciously knew, or maybe it wasn't subconscious, that Mr. Madden was near the end. So I wanted to do this really amazing special on him. And it just talks about his whole life. I mean, he went from being a player who was not a very good football player, okay? He used to joke how he got cut from team to team, but then he got right into coaching. And coaching is where John Madden really took off. I saw on Scott Shardnoff's um, Facebook page how he posted all the stuff about John Madden being a big Raiders fan. John Madden was the symbol of the Oakland Raiders. And in 1976, they beat the Minnesota Vikings in the Super Bowl. And shortly after that, Coach Madden went into announcing. And you can argue announcing he was even more successful than he was as a coach. He just became the voice of America. I remember being a real little guy, right? Yeah, and we're poor back in the duck town, blah, blah. You've heard a lot about that. Super Bowl 16. That was the first Super Bowl that John Madden and Pat Summerall did. And it was Joe Montana's first Super Bowl. The 49ers beat the Bengals 26-21. to And it was an amazing game. And this is like, I'm real little, and this is one of my first memories of watching football. And I remember Aunt Mare worked a banquet at Caesars Casino. And she brought home the Super Bowl sixteen. It was the playbook they gave out. And I used to read that book so religiously. Like, it was like one of my prized possessions. Years later, 
we won a big case for Grable and Associates, and Scott got me the ticket subs from Super Bowl 16. And Super Bowl 16, it's kind of important to me because, I mean, historically, it's Joe Montana's first big win. But it's one of the few times I remember my family, and I'm real little, I remember the game specifically. I watched it years later, but we're watching the game, and we're at peace watching this game. And it was really a special thing. And Pat Summerall was the voice of that game. John Madden was the leader. Summerall was the voice. And to me, that was like one of your first sports memories. It was so cool. And imagine the first time you did anything. Imagine. Yeah, Emily, I watched it over and over again. I know where you're going there. I don't appreciate that. Emily Thomas, you watched Super Bowl 16. He's trying to say I'm old. Thank you, Emily. Anyway, it's on NFL Network, by the way, if you really care to watch. God, people taking shots at me today. I didn't shave either. You want to mention that? I went to Lenaway without shaving today. Maybe that's why they confused my height. So Joe Montana gets his first win. John Madden does the game. It was really a special game. And I always go back and I study that game. It was one of the first memories you had of sports. And imagine your first memory is something you really love. And somebody who you admire was like narrating that thing. And that narrator followed all the big games of this thing you loved throughout your whole history. That's what John Madden was to me. It was just a special moment, man. And to see him gone, it's really sad. He lived a great life goes deeper than that though when i was in college i've never been a gamer okay so let me start with this for those of you guys and girls out there that are gamers i'm not a gamer um haven't been in fact the only video game other than the old pac-man and Hubert, the old retro things but the only video game i ever really followed on the computer was madden madden video madden's football game my best friend back home henry the head of Bill, q we were in college, and we'd be working hard. We had our jobs in college, and we used to spend late nights playing Madden against each other. And it was pretty cool how, you know, you could hear Madden's voice on that video game, and it was special. And then we spent many nights at Q's house late at night talking about the future. You know, um, he was going to be a pharmacist. I was going to be a lawyer. We weren't back then. We were poor college kids. And the Madden game was like kind of a way for us just to be like people just drinking a cup of coffee, shooting the shit. That's what me and Q were doing. And it was special that Madden was a big part of that. Then my first big case, when I was working with Tim McElwain in New Jersey, which we're not going to talk about Jersey litigation right now, but... It was against the Madden Video Company for when they weren't paying the college players. So I was still in law school working on that case. So in a lot of ways with Madden, my first memory of sports was Coach Madden. Um, the college years, figuring out the game plan with Q while playing Madden. The first on-train of litigation was about the Madden case. 
So Madden has always played a special role in my life. And I'm going to miss him, man. It's not going to be the same without him here. He gave us so many awesome memories. I don't think anybody who's truly a sports fan can say they didn't enjoy listening to John Madden and Pat Summerall shoot the breeze and teach us what was going on in football. Because they were tutors, too. If you played ball, you would learn a lot watching them. They break things down on the chalkboard. It was pretty, it was intense. It's hard to believe. You know, it's like a part of your childhood, part of your life. It's gone now. And, um, yeah. It's really sad to hear the news. I had a couple friends from law school, um, Cooley Crew Tax, we call it. And Adam Cartwright, who's a great lawyer out in Missouri, he sent the text that John Madden had passed away, and I immediately sent it right over to Scott Grable, and then it started like a game of telephone. It was spread like wildfire, and spent hours talking about John Madden and memories of him. And I want you to think about this. Here we are. I'm in my 40s, AC, Adam's in his 40s, Scott's in his 50s, there were guys in their 60s, there were guys in their 30s, and here's like this generational gap. And we're all sharing a moment of all our memories of John Madden throughout the years. It was pretty cool how for a sec we all like came together, we were all adding insight. I don't cook or anything like that, but it would be like a bunch of chefs just sitting around adding an ingredient to a thing. Emily, um, he was 85 years old, so I don't think it was anything suspicious. I just think life, you know, I think that's how he passed away. Led a great life. With the death of Madden, one of the things I came up with in the text messages was other sports memories I had. You know, in a lot of ways, sports has always been more important than law to me. If it wasn't for Carl Smallwood... Carl Smallwood was a guidance counselor at Atlantic City High School. And Carl Smallwood said to me, senior year of high school, what do you want to do with your life? And I was torn at that point. You know, I uh, kind of realized I wasn't going to play Division One baseball. That was going to happen. And I said to Mr. Smallwood, well... I'd like to get into sports casting and sports writing, or I'd like to be a lawyer. And he said the only chance you have to do anything would be in sports. You don't have the grades to be a lawyer. You're not smart to be a lawyer. You know, I had dyslexia. I was battling and still getting good grades. But So because Carl Smallwood told me I couldn't do it, I decided that day law was going to be my whole thing. So thanks, Carl. <laughs> I guess, but... One of the reasons I wanted to get into sports casting was because of John Madden. The reason I the law thing overcame was because of Carl Smallwood. Pay careful attention to that. You're not going to hear a lot of Carl Smallwood stories coming up in the future. God, he was a fucking asshole. Yeah, just. Mm. But anyway, Carl Smallwood said I couldn't be a lawyer. Mm. Oops. I usually point to the scoreboard. But I'm going to point to the autograph Mike Tyson punch out on the wall right now to show that despite all the success, I still have this heightened level of immaturity. 
So, I'm sure somebody who knows Carl Swalwood's watching this, and if you tell, if you see him, tell him Bill said hi. So, on that note, with John Madden came other sports memories. And one figure that was really big in our house was Jim Valvano. Jimmy V. A lot of people may not know who Jimmy V is. Um, I know the live audience didn't know who the hell I was talking about. You've heard of the V Foundation. Jimmy V, I think he died in 93, cancer. He gave that amazing speech on ESPN, don't give up, don't ever give up. Then you know who I'm talking about, right? Okay. So Jim Valvano, Italian guy from New York. He coached the North Carolina State Wolfpack to the 1983 NCAA National Championship. And they beat five Slamma Jamma, which was Houston's team, led by Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. On paper, North Carolina State had zero chance to be in this game. Now, why was that such an important thing to me? Well, let's start with this. Where we grew up, really poor, right? And we only had, I think, 12 channels. Went from channel like 2 to 13. And channel 2 was like cable access. That was bullshit. So you had like 12 channels, right? For whatever reason, and I don't know why, there were three college basketball teams that came on regularly. Villanova, which made sense because that was close enough to Atlantic City. That was like Philadelphia's team. Maryland, I don't know why Maryland came on, but I always was a terp, kind of a supporter because of that, and North Carolina State. Jimmy V was the head coach of North Carolina State. So there was always this huge connection to Jimmy V. You know, I'm sure being the Italian basketball coach played a role in that in my family, but you would hang on Jimmy V's every word. He was more than a coach. He was a personality that was just bigger than life. And in some ways, not to the same level, I guess, but what John Madden was to football, Jim Valvano was to college hoops. So I kind of lost track with Jimmy V. You know, you're in school and you're this and you're that, and then the guy passes away. But his speech on ESPN, watch it if you haven't, Jim Valvano's speech about when he was dying of cancer, it was powerful. And it kind of stuck with me when my mom was dying of cancer. You know, he just talked about facing fear and how to stare anything down. And nothing in this world could really intimidate you if you don't let it. It was one of the most powerful speeches you ever heard. And it kind of... Have you ever watched a 30 for 30 on North Carolina State and Jim Valvano? It's called Survive and Advance. And it's amazing. It talks about how North Carolina State just kept surviving one more game. And they kept advancing and advancing and advancing. Then they won the whole f***ing thing. It was always like a motto for life, you know? If you get through this one f***ing hurdle and just move on to the next. My Uncle Sam, may he rest in peace, great guy. We were talking baseball one day. and He was like a mentor to me with baseball. We were talking about the Phillies and the Dodgers in 1977, the NLCS. And back then it was a best of five, right? 
and he was teaching me the history of baseball. And the Phillies were down two games to none. And they were up by two runs in the ninth inning of game three. And my uncle said they should get Steve Carlton warmed up in the bullpen. Now, Steve Carlton was the best pitcher in baseball at the time. And the Phillies end up losing. And they say to Danny Ozark, who's the manager of the Phillies, why didn't you get Carlton up in the pen? And Danny Ozark said, well, he was going to pitch game four. Guess what, guys? You don't win game three. There is no game four. What do we take from that? I just got to live for today, man. You don't know what tomorrow's going to be. You just don't know. When you're like in criminal law or in life, you might have to win the hurdle in front of you. And winning that hurdle in front of you, it may hurt the next hurdle, but we don't know that. But we can't get to that next hurdle unless we win that one. If we don't win game three, we don't get the f***ing game four. Survive and advance about the North Carolina State Tar Heels of 1983 was just that. You got a star player that's got a bunch of fouls, and you want to take him out. But if you take him out, you might get too far behind. So you just got to roll the dice. Sometimes in life, we just got to roll the dice. Jim Valvano has played a role in my life. His speech, his quest for life, the way he coached basketball, there was something special about Coach V. And I just thought it was appropriate to talk about him a little bit today with the whole John Madden thing. And then there's one other sports story that kind of hit home. When Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson. Now, some of you guys are too young to really grasp that one, but Buster Douglas was a 42 to 1 underdog. And most sports books in Vegas would not even take action on this. At that time, Mike Tyson, by the way, I'm a Tyson fan. I love Tyson. But if you don't like the Buster Douglas story, you don't like life. Buster Douglas trained his ass off. His mom died prior to the fight. He had no chance in hell. And he went out there and he kicked the shit out of Mike Tyson. Now, it was on HBO. We didn't have the money for HBO back then. So, here's what I remember. My grandfather, may he rest in peace. Grandpa was a pro boxer. Tough son of a bitch. Tough man. Toughest man I ever met. So, we can't afford HBO back then, but what we could do was, if you turn to a certain channel, it would come in scrambled. So we're trying to watch it through the scrambled vision, and we pump up the volume really loud. And when Buster Douglas knocked Mike Tyson out, when they got to eight, my grandfather and I just looked at each other and we shared like this moment that will last forever. We knew he wasn't getting up. And it was like, here's history. And you know, for a second there, you forgot how poor you are. You forgot about the gunshots at Pitney Village. Forgot about all that shit. You were just living in the moment, watching through a scrambled TV, and watching Buster Douglas absolutely 
pull off the greatest upset in sports history. And I will debate that with anybody. I know people say, well, this was the greatest. That was great. Let me tell you something. When Buster Douglas knocked Mike Tyson out in 1990, that was the greatest f***ing thing you could ever hope to see in sports. It was a moment in time nobody could ever take away from that, man. And all I could say is, thinking about John Madden's death made me think about the Buster Douglas fight. Made me think about Jimmy V. And it just made me think. <laughs> Joe Abera, Bill, you need to know a guy that knows a guy that could have hacked the cable box. Well, Joe... <laughs> We did know that guy, but I'm pretty sure he was doing some prison time at that moment. <laughs> one Fun fact. One of the reasons, and I'm never one to like, I'm not a big Flash guy, I'm pretty low maintenance. One of the things I splurge on, Joe, because of that Mike Tyson fight, I have every channel known to man. If Boise State is playing an exhibition game against South Dakota, I promise you I have access to it. It's one of the few things I flaunt the money on. Because I said to myself, if we're watching that fight, this is great, but imagine we were able to actually watch it. Mm. And Emily Thomas, who that would be is none of your concern. <laughs> I'll end by saying this. Brett Musburger, who was a great announcer, I saw him um, recently. He's doing Raiders Radio. I think he's 83 years old. And seeing Brett Musburger, it made you think of the past. And I saw Brett Musburger sitting there, this 83-year-old man with a backwards baseball cap on, doing the game. So, in honor of Brett, Honor of John Madden. We're going to flip the baseball cap on backwards. I don't drink, but if you have a drink, toast to the great guy. Rest in peace, Coach Madden. Thank you so much for all the memories. And thanks for being a part of our world, man. You really made life better. When we were in pain, you helped us escape for a little bit. When we were in joy, you made us really enjoy that moment. You're going to be missed. You'll never be replaced. And we all owe you a debt of gratitude. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. I have a bunch of questions that have been sent to me. And I want to go through them. What I've learned as we evolve with this whole podcast and Facebook Live thing is the reality is that the questions people are asking should really be the topic. So I'm going to try to adjust to that. Can you explain phone dumps to us? Sure. So a phone dump happens when somebody is accused of a crime and the police feel there is evidence on the phone. 
Now, what some crooked officers will do is they'll try to get consent from a kid who doesn't know they can say no. You should make them get a warrant. Next thing you should do when you get a phone dump is fight to get the phone back. Then you want to get an expert from the Michigan State Police Department who will bring text messages back to life. Because what you want to do, guys, if the phone went to the police, is show, did the police actually violate that dump? Did they violate the dump? And if they did, then we have a fruit of the poisonous tree argument. So let's keep that in mind. Phone dumps happen in two ways. Either you consent to have somebody check your phone or a warrant's done for your phone. But you are entitled to your phone. you got to fight to get that thing back. Not an easy task. Here's where the police, things get tricky. The police can use mischaracterization. In essence, the police can lie to get to the truth. We see this with entrapment hearings. Um, we see this with pretext phone calls. A pretext phone call is when an officer will actually have somebody read a script to try and get a confession out of you. Um, we see this with polygraphs all the time. You know, the police will say, we understand what's happening here. We're here to help. Understand something. You should never talk to the cops without a lawyer. Ever. Let's start with that. But when the police lie to get to the truth, that becomes an interesting theory to present to the jury. But the cops can lie to you with no repercussions. Now, they can't hide evidence. They can't compromise text messages. But they can verbally lie to you. You really have to go after that officer on the stand if and when that happens. There's actually no penalty for verbal lies to a defendant. <sighs> Next question. My uncle is facing 25 years to life. He made a confession. Well, he didn't actually make a confession. The police signed a confession for him, and he initialed it. Here's what I think you meant to say. And I could talk more about this privately with you. What I'm guessing, and I'm sure you were emotional when you sent the email, is that the police actually wrote out a confession. He initialed it. See it all the time. Here's the thing. Don't ever make a confession. The most powerful tool a prosecutor has is a confession. You confess, you are basically signing your death warrant. We have a joke at our firms. If there's under three confessions, we feel good about our case. The third confession fourth really hurts things. But the question becomes, what is a confession? Was it coerced? I know there's this one Michigan State Police polygrapher, um, an asshole with two first names, who likes to create confessions for people and poor souls sign it. It was really good to stick it up his ass usually get a case dismissed on him when he pulled this shit. But he really, it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to beat his ass at trial, but he kind of ran with his tail between his legs and wouldn't answer my emails. What you'll see a lot of times with cops that write confessions for people is they'll usually lawyer up and won't have the balls to talk to you themselves. So if you're fucking watching, you are a fucking pussy. 
and I would never let anybody do a polygraph with you. And I hope to God one day we get to go against each other. In Bumblefuck, where my case was dismissed, that crazy little prosecutor did everything in her power to make sure you didn't go against me on cross-examination. By the way, if you want to know where the guy who did the written confession is right now, I think he's at dinner or a movie. So, enjoy that. He's not on the sex registry. He's not in jail. He's not in prison, despite the efforts of you, you piece of shit. And when you write confessions for people, poor idiots do not know the criminal justice system will sign their fucking life away. Do not agree to anything you didn't do. And if you make a confession, there's ways around it, but it's the most powerful tool you can give a prosecutor. Confessions can come verbally, they come by nodding your head, they could come from pre-Miranda silence, they could come when some asshole writes down their words and you sign off on it. First thing the judge is going to say, if they didn't do it, why did they sign it? Fair question, right? Really fair question. Don't do it. Question, what happens when the prosecutors don't tell you about the evidence? Well, that becomes a potential motion to dismiss. And the individual who wrote that, that is going to be one of the motions that are going to be filed on that particular individual's case. Um, discovery is an ongoing process, which means they can keep supplementing their evidence. But they can't actually hide evidence. And in the particular situation you're referring to, there was an accusation that there's more evidence out there that was not received by defense counsel. Um, it could lead to a dismissal or a very beneficial plea, so stay tuned on that. Can you explain hypothesis testing? Okay, this is really big in CSC cases. Um, hypothesis testing is basically using an analogy. You're trying to create a hypothetical through impeachment to test the, to basically test the officer when there is no physical evidence. What we're really looking at in those scenarios is similar situations where maybe the officer didn't do all their homework or they did their work differently. You want to do a hypothesis of what's been done in other cases to try to discredit the individual making the accusation. Hypothesis testing is a very huge thing. And I would say 95% of lawyers don't know what the f it is, so make sure you know what that is, especially in CSC litigation. Next question, how do you do a proper sentencing? Okay, we're talking state court, federal court. What county are we talking? There are Cobb's agreement in place, there are Kilbrew in place, there's probation trying to blow you up. There's a lot that goes into that. Let me be clear on this, though. You should always do a sentencing memo on a felony sentence. Federally, you have to do a sentencing memo. A sentencing memo is something that tells the jury, sorry, tells the judge there's something more to the story. You try to put your client in a good light. Now, sometimes your client is not going to help themselves. You've got to prep them. And then after you prep them, you got to hope, hey, listen, I told you everything to say and do. Hope they follow through with it. If you're at a sentence and it's on a plea, be humble, be contrite, let your lawyer do the talking, 
have a good sentencing memo, have letters of support. That's how that plays out. That's in a nutshell, okay? What do you think of video sentencing? Okay. Um, this is a topic Ashley DuPlessis and I talked about today, actually. Um, Ashley DuPlessis is a great young lawyer, Wayne County area. And she has a sentencing coming up, and she's doing a video sentencing. I always feel video is more powerful than the verbal word. I think when you actually see a video, you are drawn more into it. So video sentencings have a lot of weight. They're kind of cutting edge. I know Ash is one of the ones at the forefront of that, but video sentences can be powerful. Make sure you show the court what you need to show. Make sure your video is clean, but I think it can be a very powerful tool if done correctly. If done incorrectly, it's going to hurt you, but if done correctly, it could be a great topic. I'm accused of CSC in Livingston County. I have not been charged yet. Any advice? Yeah, call Bill McQuarrie. If you're in Livingston County, um, Bill McQuarrie is who you should be calling. Maybe the best trial lawyer in the state, and he's the king of Livingston County. If I was charged with a crime in Livingston County, I would go to Bill McQuarrie. So look him up. But uh, Bill McQuarrie is a great option there for you. Good luck with that. Uh, if it was anywhere else, I would tell you I'd be the option, but I think in Livingston, you want to go with Bill. Are reviews for lawyers accurate online? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. I get a lot of calls because of some of the reviews I got. Now, understand, there's something what we call um, haters. Hater is sometimes another lawyer that puts up false reviews about you. You got to be careful with that. If somebody only has positive reviews, it's probably bullshit. You're going to get some negative ones. I think the most ridiculous review I had was a one star from this ass McComb. And I represented his ex-wife. And I won her case. And it was a drug case. And he wrote in the review, this piece of shit got my baby mama off and she's a drug addict. That could be taken a few different ways. Anyway, that being said, you know, I mean, you want a case, you got a bad review. In this field, reviews are very subjective. They're often very... Yeah, there's a lot of bullshit that goes into reviews. I have tons and tons of great reviews online. I appreciate that, but don't believe every review you see, good or bad, about a lawyer. All right. I'm Bill Amadeo. This went from comedy to anger. I do hope that Mr. Sarconi, Brandon Beery, Norman Fell, and the librarians spell my name right when you Google stalk me. Have a good one. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the 
the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.